Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with the gender-affirming to my care. Jordan Crook. I think that's great. We're all positive this time around. Everybody's positive. It's a good episode, right? It's a great episode. We're feeling optimistic and hopeful. Yes. Yes. And you'll hear why during our conversation. But you know this podcast. It's the podcast from TechCrunch where you hear the stories behind the startups. And if you don't know it, welcome. We're glad to have you. And you're in time for a very special deal because we've got TechCrunch Disrupt coming up on October 18th through the 20th. So that's next week, I believe, if the timing goes all to plan with the release schedule, which means you can still go. You can still get tickets. You can still show up and see us and see the whole show. And you can get 15% off your pass if you use code FOUND. So the name of the show. Also, special deal that we just announced recently, you get a free expo pass to the show if you've been laid off recently, and there's no strings attached with that offer. So expo show passes mean you get access to the expo floor where there are tons of startups exhibiting and hiring, typically. Yep, probably recruiting. Yeah, exactly. And also to the breakout sessions, which is like a great opportunity to get some advice about entrepreneurship or maybe how to make your next move. And tons of other networking opportunities like partner roundtables and parties as well. So for more info, you can check out the link in our bio. But Jordan, today, today, yes. we're talking to Jerrica Kirkley and Matthew Wetchler, the co-founders of Plume, which is a telehealth provider that specializes in transgender care. Are you excited? Yeah. No, I'm super amped. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to them. So let's... Let's get it going. Yeah, we I think we already did. So we're playing a little bit of a game here with the t- the tent. Well, the yeah, disrupts also not in a week. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just a time shifting. Uh, you know, adventure. Don't call me out. <laughs> it. I didn't call you out on it. Like, are we in it or not? <laughs> All right, let's get to our chat with Jerrica and Matthew. Hi, Jerrica. Hi, Matthew. How's it going? Good. Great. Yeah, thanks. Good to have you. Good to be talking to you this fine morning. What we typically do on the show is have you explain a little bit about your company before we get into the the meat of it, the questions. But yeah, do you want to give us kind of a high-level overview of what Plume is? I don't know who usually gives the elevator pitch. Probably both of you. <laughs> but whoever wants to start can go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. At a high level, Plume is the first digital health company for the transgender community. And our vision is to transform healthcare for every trans life. That means by providing direct care to many and hopefully in someday most, but also in sharing the information that we gather from being now the largest trans clinic in the world out to the other stakeholders to help shape policy and clinical guidelines. Anything you want to add, Jerrica, or is that basically sum it up? I think that, that basically sums it up. She's actually cool. holding the script card, so I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I was trying not to stumble over there. <laughs> yeah, this is an audio-only podcast, so you can't see it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, great. So now, I think you founded this, it was 2019, is that right? I'm just going off of basically LinkedIn, but... Yeah, so just before the pandemic, but I'm curious, how did you 
come to this to begin with? So what was kind of your journey to this? And probably separate answers for both, I'm guessing, for this one. But <laughs> yeah, do you want to start us off, Jerica? How did you, you sure. get into this business? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, the business itself, I think, had its really origin point in our first year of medical school where Matthew and I met. So we've been best friends ever since. Cool. And we certainly have our individual stories as well. And for me, you know, I went into healthcare, went to medical school in the first place because I really saw medicine as a vehicle for social justice. And it took me down a lot of different paths, but ultimately was always looking to find ways to uplift marginalized communities and those communities that have been historically underserved have fallen through the cracks, especially in our healthcare system, and try to find ways to provide amazing healthcare. And so it took me to a lot of places within the US, a lot of traveling abroad, but ultimately doing a family medicine residency. And I was drawn to family medicine, again, because of its social justice roots. It was a specialty that was created really to solve an access gap and had a lot of participation in things like the civil rights movement. And it was in my residency where I really first had the opportunity to provide care to trans folks as a physician. And it was incredibly powerful to be a part of that journey with somebody. Certainly was important for me professionally, but also personally in a way that I probably didn't fully know at the time, um, you know, coming out later as a trans person, but really saw the gap in care that existed at that time. So from that point forward, made it my mission. I was like, hey, I want to find a way to provide amazing healthcare to trans folks and led to teaching on trans healthcare, helping up-level clinic systems to provide gender-affirming care and just constantly questing to improve access to healthcare for the trans community. And and Matthew and I, again, best friends since medical school. And, and so we've right. always kept in touch. And I think we had our, you know, our little weekly phone call, uh, even though we were both different places talking about the next big idea that would like really, you know, transform healthcare. And, and we went through a lot of them, uh, but Matthew can share about his own journey and, and how they kind of collided in a big way to uh, spark that idea for Flynn. Sure. Yeah. So for me, I was actually a philosophy major in undergrad. So just this constant big picture thinker. And the moment I went into medical training, uh, what was very apparent is the system that medicine was being practiced within wasn't serving either the patients well or the care teams that were delivering clinical services well. And what I saw is, you know, how systems were designed and how medicine is actually paid for shapes drastically how care is experienced at the point of delivery. And so I took some time off. I did a second degree, a master's in public health. I focused on new models of care and technology, ended up out at Stanford to do residency and be in the milieu of Silicon Valley and had basically since, you know, the year that Jarek and I met been looking for an opportunity to move the needle on how healthcare is delivered. I also had my own healthcare journey. So I'm a spinal cord injury survivor. I was actually um, a full quadriplegic for a better part of a year after a surfing injury in San Francisco and experienced the best and worst of American healthcare. You know, the surgery that I received was um, actually a novel uh, care protocol and now patient zero in a study. <laughs> uh, you know, and then once I left the hospital, just the the financial aftermath and uh, trying to coordinate care was almost as traumatic as the injury itself, which is not how medicine should be. And so right. you know, I think Jerk and I both come from very personal places in looking for an opportunity to make healthcare more transparent, more accessible, more, you know, for the trans community affirming. And so it was really the the combination of our two stories, our two passions that Plume went out of. And we actually bootstrapped Plume. We started with our own money and oh. taped a sign to a door 
in a borrowed clinic in Colorado Springs, like literally an eight and a half by 11 printout that we designed on Canva. No, uh, yeah, no professional relationship to Canva. <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, it's been, you know, and it's been a journey. And so now three years later, we just closed our series B, which is very exciting. And we are, I think we just confirmed uh, the largest trans healthcare provider in the world. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, the question, and Jerrica, when you were speaking about this, I was kind of thinking in my head, like, oh, I guess the appeal of the scale probably helped a lot as to to why to go in this direction. Mm-hmm. But do you want to talk a bit more about that? Because you both mentioned like being the largest, right, is quite an achievement. And but it also, and maybe I'm wrong to assume this, but probably wasn't that hard to pass that hurdle because a lot of them probably have limited reach before now, right? But do you want to talk more about that, Jerrica? Yeah. So where I had mainly worked before starting Plume was a federally qualified community health center, named at QHC. So I was working in a safety net setting, right? And this is supposed to be the place where like, if you can't get anywhere else, you can get care here. But unfortunately, that's not always the case, right? And it's not the case for many people, but I think especially I was seeing that for the trans community and my patients who, right, even in Colorado, still living five, six hours away, didn't have a care provider anywhere near them, were, you know, driving or some people even flying to Denver just to get care, get labs done, have visits. So it was abundantly clear to me that even in the state of Colorado, we needed to do more to expand access. You know, I was talking with my clinic about implementing a, a telehealth program, right? Of course, this is like right. well before the pandemic came. You know, I was trying to start an FQHC that was dedicated to the trans community in Colorado that would serve like the Mountain West region, but was running into a lot of red tape and restrictions based on, you know, the presence of other community health centers, even if they were serving that population or not. So basically, yeah. it was like, hey, I'm going to great lengths to provide access, you know, to the community and, and even in a, obviously a relatively local or regional level and seeing how hard it was. And so it just became abundantly clear that to really get this care to folks, it had to be delivered in a different way. You know, the brick and mortar model was not sufficient. And Matthew had been working with some digital health companies, like actually, you know, as he was getting back into medicine and exploring the business side of things, seeing patients that way. And, and I was like, it's like, hey, you know, I mean, I remember that we were, we had a phone call. I was taking some time off and visiting my sister. I was standing on the beach and we were having our weekly phone call and we're like, why don't we just do this? You know, mm-hmm. we could totally deliver gender affirming care this way. We know there's tons of obstacles for people getting into the clinic. There's discrimination. It's a huge barrier just to walk out of your house if you're trans, you know, for many people and like provide it in the comfort of your home. And so I, you know, that was really the conversation that, that tipped it all off. And that was February, 2019. And, and of course we did a lot of research. We talked to a lot of patients, talked to a lot of community members who are trans healthcare providers, and just further cemented the fact that this was, this was really necessary. And so that's when we kicked off the pilot in August of 2019. So what was the like go to market basically? Like, right. how do you start something like that? You know? Yeah, well, it was a Facebook post. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the ghost market strategy was Jericho's Facebook post <laughs> and, uh, and, in August of 2019. Yeah, and, and, and Matthew can tell you more about the, uh, the formal go to market strategy yeah. as we, we started to get rolling. <laughs> yeah, well, I say something. If we were to talk about the trans community as a patient group, they are as a community more online, more tightly networked, and more willing to proactively share 
healthcare information than nearly any other patient population where, as Jerka uh, mentioned, people experience discrimination and stigma within the clinical environment. You know, while within the community, there's an immense amount of pride. And, you know, whenever somebody starts gender-affirming hormone therapy, I mean, that's a moment to be celebrated. It's like you congratulate somebody when they've made that choice for themselves. And so it's very common to see people posting their vials of tea on Instagram. And and so really early on, we started with a community-driven grassroots approach, worked with a lot of local community members through Instagram and built out essentially, you know, a reputation of being uh, trustable. You know, we were new kid on the block. And so there's just something about actually very interesting. There was almost a disbelief because it was so easy. Mm. People were wondering if we were actually it's like a, Is it a scam, real. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, no, you can actually do it this way. And so from there, I mean, we built very organically in many ways. And obviously you complement that with traditional channels, you know, paid media. But over time, we've also been, you know, building our brand, building, you know, we share relatable and reliable content about healthcare access for the trans community, which is, you know, on one side, Jerk can speak more to this, you know, you have Reddit forums, which is everybody's anecdotal experience. It's very personally relatable. However, there's a wide variety of information. It's difficult to know what the quality is. And then on the other side, you have guidelines from an academic institution, which seem very formal and solid, but do they really connect with me, my lived experience? And, you know, in the middle, we have uh, Jerrica, who's you know, been through the journey herself and has also dedicated her life to this community. And that's that's the space that we try to occupy. Nice. I noticed you provide like some Halo stuff as well, like around, like it seems like you go above and beyond and provide things that wouldn't necessarily be included in like the standard medical care you would go if you pursue the traditional route, right? Which maybe Jerrica has something to do with your own journey and like reflecting some of your experiences, but I don't want to speak for you, but yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, I think there are so many aspects of that journey which are not, you know, core clinical centered, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, navigating certainly the social world, right? From one, just we know that most trans people don't know another trans person, you know? And so, providing that place of connection and community is huge. And that can be really hard to find in a clinic setting, which is typically very sterile, you know, and, and oftentimes dysphoric, quite frankly. But then there are the legal pieces as well, how to navigate getting your gender marker changed, if that's something right. that you need to do, how to navigate getting your legal name changed. There are, yeah, there's there's not, you know, a great cookbook for that. Uh, and it can be different in every state. And so I think when we think about approaching this care, we really think about it in a holistic way. And so attending to the clinical needs, if those are needed, but also the socio-legal needs as well. And yeah, certainly came out of my experiences, my personal experiences, having to go through pretty much all those things myself, but also watching my patients have to go through it and watching them go through it in care environments, which didn't really have the infrastructure for it, which meant that, okay, I'm going to be the one to do this, right? And I'm just like mm-hmm. one-off looking up things for people. Of course, then we're like, well, why don't we just systematize this? And one thing I was going to say earlier was, you know, an anecdote about, I think just understanding, one, the gap in care, but how powerful word of mouth is, is when I was in my residency, one of the things that I did is I started this curriculum, like a three-year curriculum for the residents, teaching on LGBTQ plus care broadly. But a big part of that was a protocol for hormone therapy. And so something that literally lived in a binder, right? It's pre-digital days and just like <laughs> dropped this binder in the middle of the resident room. 
and of course providing teaching on it, but people could pick this up and flip it open and say, hey, okay, somebody's here for their three-month labs, like what labs do I get, you know? And so providers, physicians started using this and I like how this isn't so hard. And then patients started coming to our clinic in this tiny little family medicine clinic in the basement of a hospital in Denver and more and more people started showing up, you know, and then it was like, wow, okay, this is it. You know, if you actually provide resources to providers to provide this care, you start providing the care, you know, people will find out about you and come to you and tell other people about you. Right. Yeah. What Jerrica was mentioning about this community element, uh, some of our data is, is starting to come out now that we've had enough time to work with patients over a few year period. And what we're seeing is those that are participating in our community groups, our peer support groups have an 85% reduction in positive screening for depression within just even one, one visit. And you know, that's the power of, I think, being able to connect people, you know, especially in places where there might be coverage deserts, which right. is very important. And right now we do say that we, we are quite large, relatively speaking, but you know, we're caring for, I'd say nearly 12,000 patients. And that's still less than 1% of the entire U.S. population in the trans community. And so, you know, we're doing this in a very disruptive way. And I think what's so exciting is the opportunity ahead, like the amount of need that is out there for, you know, care like this. Right. And that's just talking in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So how do you, you launched in 2019, and then obviously that was during Trump which has been just terrible. And then obviously we have a lot happening in the last three-ish years with COVID and Biden and then Roe, like just politically speaking with everything that's going on, how has that affected business, if at all? And kind of how has that affected your methodology and approach to talking to people and, and getting people on board? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, on one level, just taking a really giant step back, this stuff is really bad, right? And, and it, it dramatically affects people in really horrible ways, but it's also nothing new, you know? I mean, it, there's a big focus in the last three years. We're seeing all this anti-trans legislation, Trump, et cetera, but this is what we've been facing forever. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think as any marginalized community and especially the trans community, and in fact, that's why trans people are so online, as Matthew mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. that's where we've been seeking out safe spaces for the last 20, 30 years. And I think in how we approach this as a company is, you know, gets to what Matthew said at the beginning, which is we first and foremost provide direct care. We're going to provide amazing care to our patients. We're going to be that access point. And that's huge, I think, because the downstream effects of what we're seeing, even if legislation directly does not impact care, yeah, it's going to make it harder and harder for trans people to even, again, walk out of their houses, right? Right. Even try to go to their local primary care clinic and think about asking, you know, for hormones, for example, right? Or even stating that they're trans to somebody. Yeah. So we know that that impact is there. And, and so being able to access that care from the safety of your home is important. But then, you know, the bigger picture is, yeah, what we're doing is uh, there's so much potential here in terms of understanding the positive impacts of this care. When we have about 12,000 people now, you know, soon have many more than that. And to actually produce research reports and, and impact legislation and actually change those policies, you know, or prevent them from happening in the first place. So yeah, we really do think about this of not only the care and impact we have for our patients, but also to the broader community. And, you know, and I think the fact that this is nothing new that that adds to the resiliency, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to see these things, but like we've pushed through a lot before. We also 
you know, stand on the shoulder of giants who have done that as well, right? And like paved the way in so many ways, whether it's them, the healthcare environment for the trans community or just the broader trans advocacy space. And at least for me personally, and I know for Matthew as well, and a lot of people in our company, like that's a huge inspiration and helps push us forward. Yeah. When you talked about, I think you did right right at the outset when you were describing Matthew, kind of like the company and its mission, you mentioned research inputs like and things that you can do there and now that you're talking about it jerica and you're and i'm thinking about the scale it's like a lot of this was just invisible there was no data available for so many of the things that you now can potentially discover about social impacts about kind of like interrelations and like how things work with one another there was nothing because there was no no scale of it and there was no attention paid to it right so it seems like you'll have tremendous ability to make impacts there. Yeah, yeah. I think to, Jared can be a little bit modest about this, but I'm going to hyper up just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, there's two things to say is one, data has been available. I mean, uh, gender affirming care has been practiced for, I mean, in some form over 100 years right. and in more formal settings over 50 years. And a, a lot of the leading gender affirming care clinics actually came out of those clinics that were started to care for the HIV community. And so like UCSF, Fenway, Mazzoni um, Center in Philadelphia are great examples. However, data sets have been small. You know, mm-hmm. some of the largest data, clinical data collected on the community is often around a, a thousand patients. And actually Jericho was... Just, just getting in under that, or just over the end value is significant yeah, yeah, number, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and some are, you know, some are less than 100, some are less than right. 50. Right. And so finding scale, as you mentioned, and finding the, um, the sample sizes has been quite difficult historically. However, Jerica just got back from WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. It's an international event. It's one of the largest events in the clinical community you know, every year and presented uh, one of our first abstracts. And so formal research and uh, our sample size, I think the, the largest sample size of any study presented in that clip in that conference was about 500 patients. The study that Jerica presented was 10,000. Wow. And so to our knowledge, Jerica, maybe you can confirm this, but to our knowledge, it's the largest clinical data set ever published on the trans community. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, I think the largest I'd seen to date was probably looking at about 2,500 trans people. But over like a retrospective analysis over 30 years or so. And wow, you know, yeah. this is obviously patients that have come on over the last three years. So yeah, it is pretty incredible. And I think that's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of you know what we will be able to, to show and, and you know those insights we'll be able to find. So how do you think about the big channels, I guess, for either like partnerships or whatever? Because the reason I bring it up is my partner works in aesthetics and I know just from hearing her on calls and whatever that like there's clearly a big focus right now on the trans community and what can be done. And it's the same kind of challenge and that like there's limited access to like big data sets and like clinical trials, et cetera, like become more difficult with that much of a focus and a big powerhouse pharma or whatever company feels like that might be a good partnership. So do you think about like, while there's like a wave of kind of anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ, et cetera, stuff happening, there's also the counter part to that, right? That's like rising up. And so I'm just curious how you think about tapping into that, if at all. Yeah, I'll I'll speak first. I know Matthew can add a lot in terms of thinking about, you know, enterprise relationships and partnerships, but I'll, I'll talk 
one to the social aspect and then two to the specific research side, which I think both are really interesting. And yes, you know, we talk about this anti-LGBTQ sentiment and legislation in some cases. It gets a lot of attention. And this is one of the things that also really keeps me going and, and what is very privileged to be on the other side of this, right? And actually talking to the key stakeholders, the health insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, the healthcare provider systems. And even though you see a lot of that in the news, the reality is the tide has already turned in a massive mm. way, right? I mean, you know, we have people coming to us, massive health insurance companies being like, we want to take care of our trans members. How do we do this? And mm -hmm. that's the thing that that's the side that a lot of people don't get to see. And it's hard when you don't see that. And all you do see is what's flashing up in your newsfeed, right? To all those who don't get to see that, I just want to say it's going to change dramatically, and you know, over the next couple of years. And I think on the research side, specifically the same thing, we've had pharmaceutical companies come to us and say like, wow, this is an awesome opportunity for us to, you know, actually conduct like clinical trials. And in fact, was at a conference recently with that person who leads up the digital clinical trials process at Walgreens Pharmacy, right? You know, who are all over the country. And so, yeah, like the big companies are actually thinking about this and, and specifically in how they can care for their trans patients and members. I can speak to you know, more from the um, enterprise partnership side, I'd say something that is unique is the amount of actually inbound interest we have. And so Jerrica talks about this, the tides have changed. And we love to say that Plume is successful because of personal brilliance, but that would be, you know, providing something at a moment where it's, it's quite needed and the timing's appropriate. And we have our payer partnerships team that our VP has been doing this for nearly two decades and has said that the amount of inbound that he is just fielding is something that he's never experienced in his in his professional career. And so we're not at a place to to share names yet. But just yesterday we had um, an inbound request from a hundred thousand plus person employer. And uh, you know this is at a time where the general wisdom in digital health is that HR benefits managers are completely saturated with point solutions and would never want to like get another thing. And uh, to have Actually, those benefits managers doing active requests for introductions to us, I think, just speaks to where right. things are and that that tide is turning. Additionally, Derek, uh, I think Plume is unique one because of how we built the company. I mean, of a, a headcount of over 140, including our service team, we're uh, nearly 50% trans. Our employees, and so it's deeply informed by the the lived experience of this community. It's been a part of our philosophy of how we built this company. And also, you know, Jerick and I are both doctors, like it's kind of rooted in a clinician's like ethical and moral grounding. And we found that that really resonates when we're talking to insurers and payers. And so that's also where you're seeing the greatest consolidation of lives. You know, for example, uh, even just a moderate payer in a single state, you know, in Texas would have three, five million lives covered. And within that, you know, you're looking at tens of thousands of trans people. And so that's where you start to get the big step change. And for us with our funding, that's what we're doing. We're ensuring that over 90% of the U.S. population can access Plume by using their insurance by end of 2023. Great. Yeah, that I think it's so hopeful that that market signal that you're both alluding to there, like, and it's definitely something I hadn't thought about, but it's something that I see a lot of my 
day-to-day is covering kind of like clean tech stuff. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. see that there too, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a lot of hem and haw politically about like, oh, well, let's repeal all this and like, let's roll coal and let's do awful things and whatever. But then on the other side, everyone's beyond that. Like all the major players with any kind of like capital influence are like, no, we're spending heavily on green technology and will be for forever from right. now on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's why Jerk and I started this direct-to-consumer. We started DTC because it doesn't ask for permission. You know, the need is right. there. We knew the need was there. Um, we didn't really need to convince anybody. We were convinced and here we are. And now we're at a place that we have the platform, we have the clout to start sort of advocating for this at, at a much larger level. You know, Jerica's out in DC and talking to lawmakers and, you know, now we're locking in big partnerships. And so it's a really exciting moment for us. Yeah. And I think that that direct-to-consumer start, it is, I, you know, a bit ironic, right? I mean, I've been in the grassroots healthcare world forever, right? And that's like, I was, so I was exactly you know, we were talking about this last night. We were having dinner and I was like, plan was literally to go to medical school, become a doctor and provide free healthcare all around the world. Specifically, I was going to provide free orthopedic surgeries to uh, you know everybody all around the world, but you, you figure out that it's not totally possible. Maybe we'll get there one day, you know, that, that, yeah. that's like, maybe that's, that's 2025 for free for everybody. But, you know, this is that, that's like why I got into this. And quite honestly, there was a lot of pushback when we started this. And even in my own, you know, provider community of like, wow, like, you know, you're going to create this direct to consumer business that's venture backed and, you know, for the trans community. And, you know, and, and I've been in this FQHC world where we had a lot of people telling patients what we think they need, like, like what we think of quote unquote, patient-centered medical home is. But this was an opportunity where it's like, hey, we're just like literally building what the community wants and needs. You know, I mean, that is the core essence of direct-to-consumer. You're building everything around your consumer, in our case, our patients' needs and desires. And to me, that is the most radical grassroots approach you can possibly take, right? We weren't bound to some, you know, government regulation or grant or anything. It was just like, this is what our patients want. And we're going to build it and make this the most amazing thing ever. And and so um, I don't know. It's it's been really cool to be a part of that in a way that I I think always wanted to, and that's why I went mm-hmm. down the whole nonprofit track. But I was honestly having a lot a really hard time finding that there. And both spaces can be really positive, right? Yeah, yeah. I've certainly seen the huge benefits that FQHCs, for example, can bring. But this was just I think a, a neat way to enter to inject a, a little bit of creativity and innovation in the process. Inject pun. Yeah. <laughs> I caught it. I had to. <laughs> I'm curious because you mentioned being venture backed, though. Like, I'm curious about what the process was like fundraising. Like, yeah. was that a good experience? Did you feel like you had to do a ton of education? I mean, VC has not budged much in terms of diversity. Like, we've seen some right. small pings on the dial, but like, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's a bunch of older white dudes cisgender yeah. white dudes. And especially when you look at the money behind the money, right? Like the LP. <laughs> the money behind the money is even more traditional, right? Yeah. Conservative, whatever. So I'm just like curious what that was like, because I found that some founders who are doing pretty revolutionary things or serving underserved communities tend to have to do a lot of education and they kind of see early on in conversations like, oh, you're not interested in this education, mm-hmm. like where we shouldn't even be talking. Right. Um, and so I'm just curious, like what what the experience was like for you guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I was a tip of the spear on that one. (laughs) Uh And what I 
I, I was actually really impressed. I think that, you know, there's going to be some firms that are big crossover funds that are, you know, just hopping on the next like hot market or, you know, just trying to jump in and not necessarily fully invested in either the thesis, you know, as we were approaching it or personalized, you know, what we're really talking about is, is healthcare that is like more personalized, not along lines right. of genetics or, or disease process, but like a community and identity. And there's some that are very aligned with that thesis. I think we've met a community that from their position in the system are looking for legitimate opportunities to make the world a better place. It's pretty inspiring. And Plume is, but there's, you know, there's a law of physics to venture capital. You can't put your money anywhere. It has to grow and there has to be, the numbers have to work. For me, that's like what is inspiring and kind of what keeps me going is that creative project of let us bring real value to a community that is one of the most underserved. However, dude, in a way where the numbers work and we can put venture capital into this and reach a scale at a speed that is unparalleled and, you know, because the need is that great. And so what we have found though, is we, we do end up connecting with people that are newer partners. So I'm definitely not working with GPs. And I think there's a, definitely a new generation of investors coming up that are are trying to find that balance of like, yes, we've got to make the numbers work. And there's ways of really bringing value into the world and people, you know, I think inspired and, and believe in that. Yeah. 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 I just had a question related to the bootstrap because you mentioned your bootstrap. Was the plan always like, we'll bootstrap this now and then we will go look at venture later? Like, was that intentional or did you consider going for venture early or did it help to have the numbers and the actual traction when you were going out and looking for the venture? Yeah, Jerka, go for it. No, I mean, I think that was definitely the plan. And bootstrapping that pilot, yeah, obviously it was a fairly small number at that time. But having those patients, you know, having gone through that process and you know, having that feedback from patients, I, I think it was really powerful. Where, of course, you have a lot of people raising multiple rounds of funding pre-product, you know, and, and, and we right. walked in with like, it was me and a cell phone, but a clinic, you know, a virtual <laughs> clinic for trans people. <laughs> uh, it, like we had a product, you know, we had like a thriving product that people love and were like, oh my God, if I had access to this 20 years ago, my life would be totally different, you know? And when you walk in with that, I think that is incredibly powerful. So yeah, we always had our, our eye on it, you know, that being the vehicle, but we did believe that having that, especially again, we talk about the education, right? So, yeah. you know, going into venture capital companies being like virtual trans care, it's the new hot thing, you know, that you, you got to have like a little bit more than a slide, it turns out. Um, and, you know, I think quite honestly, right, we still, yes, I come from, you know, an underrepresented background. You don't want to speak for all underrepresented founders, right? We carry a lot of privilege. We're both white you know, different for everybody. But I think one thing that was really compelling for investors that we talked to was our story, you know, and I think our individual stories and how deeply personal this is and how motivated we are to bring this to the world, like for good, but also our story together, you know, and I, I think Matthew and I have been through a lot together and, and it's like, you know, there's just this synergy there that is, um, that's helped us go through a lot of personal things, uh, professional things. And I think that shines through as well. But yeah, there was a lot of education and bringing people along. But as Matthew right. said, it was nice to see that people were willing to listen, which was really cool. Yeah, I think you're both good at the education part. Because I mean, during the course of our conversation, it was like, I was like, oh, resilience. Oh, that's really good. That sounds like a good thing to invest in because they're kind of like <laughs> immune to the vagaries of the political whims or whatever. <laughs> 
And then what was the other thing that you kind of snuck in? Oh, the size, just the addressable market. I was like, oh, yeah, there's the TAM. I picked it up. <laughs> Basically ready to invest, right, Daryl? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I hand you his VR headset because all of his yeah, wealth goes into gadgets. To yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what about like, obviously you have this super focused approach, right? Focusing on the trans community, but at scale, do you see yourself providing other kinds of personalized care or maybe to other groups of people in some way, shape or form? I mean, there's like a lot being being done right now. And obviously in women's health, there's a lot being done in reproductive health in terms of just like innovation and the way that people are looking at things. So I'm just curious if you'd ever even consider it or if it's not important because you have the TAM that you need to kind of just focus on this, this core mission. Oh, I'll hand it over to the big picture artist to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is me. Yeah, this you know, I, I think this question naturally comes up because, um, you know, you're looking at, uh, what's, currently known to be around 1% of the U.S. population. So people's immediate reaction, ah, the TAM can't be there, TAM can't be there. But when we just go through the numbers and look through it, I mean, there is a multi-billion dollar company just caring for the trans community. And I think actually when we get there, what it will show is actually companies that are focusing on very specific communities are actually phenomenal opportunities. It's phenomenal opportunities for that community. And it's also a very viable strategy as an organization. And, you know, and this is actually, you read like Peter Thiel, zero to one or something. And they'll always talk about funding. You don't start big, you get focused and you care for that market, or, you know, in our case, this patient community, the best you can better than anybody. I think where there is opportunities is Jericho was mentioning, there's an entire ecosystem of need within the trans community that, you know, we're starting purely with, we'll call it medical care, which is, you know, focused around prescribing medications or providing therapy or community support groups. There's also elements, you know, uh, over 65% of our patients when they come in report planning to have surgery at some point. And so I think there's a space to help facilitate the surgical journey. That's a very important part, not of the journey for some, not all. But, you know, our goal isn't to remain focused on just a narrow portion of the trans journey, but being essentially a center of excellence, a virtual center of excellence that one would only be able to access in a major market city made available to anybody in the U.S. agnostic of geography. And so that holistic full spectrum, you know, experience is really what we're moving towards over time. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, too, like some of the things with like legal name change Mm -hmm. or... You know, like that stuff seems like it's also things you could eventually offer a first party or partner directly with people to help with that or whatever, right? But, yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's there's no shortage of <laughs> of need yeah. within the community for many of these services. And so... Well, and it's a lifelong journey stop. too, right? Mm-hmm. So like absolutely. your customer, mm-hmm. yeah, like if you deliver them great care, like they're going to be with you for a very, very long time. Daryl, do you want to just start pitching? Yeah, this, <laughs> I, I'm angling yeah. for a job. Sorry. Right. <laughs> you, you can take the community traction Hi, slide. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Daryl, what are you doing, buddy? Listen, that's a journey. You know, I'm always just uh, you're always hunting looking for the looking yeah. for the next thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. eyes on the horizon. Yeah. 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 So, one question I like to ask is like, what for the two of you was since launch, kind of the peak and the pit of this journey so far, like the moment you felt 
at your best, highest, we're going to crush this, dreams come true. And the moment you were like, why am I doing this? <laughs> such a such a good question. <laughs> so we're talking about Mondays and Fridays. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, basically. Like every week. Um, <laughs> yeah, I you know there was there there's just something so special about that first call that you're gonna get funding. You know, and like I mm. I gosh, like that moment um, just feels like it was yesterday. And I remember we got this, usually this was our first like formal pitch together and still pre COVID, but we took it as a zoom call because we were both different places and you get out, you know, we're like, oh gosh, like, I have no idea how that went and you get a call like 10 minutes later and I'm like, we want to give you money and they're like oh, trying, to, wow. trying to keep it cool. And we're like, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll consider that contract. Uh, talk yeah, to our lawyers you. that we don't have. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> get off the phone. We immediately call each other back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so I think, like, yeah, because that was when it became real. You know, it was like, wow, we can actually do this. Like this, like I mean, lifetime effectively of, of leading up to this. But you know, then six to at that time nine months of really planning this out, and and you, of course you dream up all the opportunity, and and then you get that that first check, and it's like, wow, all right. We are doing this. So, I mean, that was one of the all-time peaks, and there's been many since, you know, we've started this, but certainly one that stands out. All right, we'll do we'll do a little tit for tat here. I'm going to throw it over to Matthew to do a peek, uh, and, and then we'll, then we'll, do, the, yeah. then we'll do the, uh, the pit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd say that as well. I mean, we've been, I think for me, I, like, I came out of my spinal cord injury, essentially buried in medical debt, and um you know, I was unable to use my arms for a long time. And so, you know, I trained 15 years to be a doctor and and then wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to practice again. So it was a a pretty tough spot personally. And this was, I had tried to focus my career in a way that I would be able to, you know, move towards entrepreneurship. It's always something I had my eye on. And uh, this was really got to jump into the pool. And so I'd been effectively operating without a safety net, you know, since founding the company. And, you know, when we got to the series A, I was finally able to become fully debt-free. And it, um, to me, I mean, this is like more of a personal note, but it was closing the chapter Mm. on having like had this death experience and, you know, kind of like literally having to learn to walk again. And, you know, I was like eating from a straw for a long time. So it was a long, a long journey. And, uh, on the other side of that, you know, now I basically am full-time CEO and have found a career that is, you know, this is my favorite work that I've ever done. It's the most gratifying, the most meaningful work I've ever done. I feel extremely fortunate to be invited into allyship by a very close friend. And now I've been working alongside this community for nearly three years, which I found profoundly inspiring. And so I couldn't, you know, you know, it's it's really easy to get caught in the day to day, but honestly, I mean, this is this is best life scenario right now. It's amazing. Yeah, and then you know, a pit. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the old uh, <laughs> classic interview trick. Uh, weakness <laughs> as a strength, you know. Um, so this. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, like this pit is, I guess, kind of a peak as well, and it's been something that I've been really processing in a big way since we started. And so what I'm talking about is this, like the massive alignment, right? So I am a trans person, not planned, but basically came out right when we started this business, like we started that pilot, you know? And so I've had my personal 
journey of, you know, gender journey paralleling our company. And so in one way, that's been really awesome, right? Like, oh my gosh, I get to be around trans people all day long. Like very few trans people can say, very few any people mm-hmm. can say that, you know, and it's just so inspiring and, and food for the soul. But also it's kind of like, I don't know, like maybe I think of like child celebrities, right? Where you're just kind of like thrust out there and it's like, <sighs> hey, I'm Jerrica the trans woman doing trans care on a national scale, you know, and it, and it didn't create, it didn't give me a lot of space, I think, to really understand who I am and really create that identity that's authentic, that's most authentic to me, right? It was a version of it. And it just, it took literally like, yeah, three years to truly understand who I am and separate that from the business in a way that, of course, my identity is so intertwined and, and in many ways can be beautiful, but also can be hard, right? Like if, if yeah. that is... If your existence is your company, yeah, if the company's like not doing great, then like you're not doing great, you know? And so I think right. I just had to figure out how to create that healthy distance where they both can coexist. And that's been a, been a long journey, but um, I feel like I'm finally getting it. And, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I went camping for seven days and completely unplugged. And, and so like, and I like came back, I was like, turn like, the wilderness. Me with Jer- just me and Jerry. It was like first time. Just, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Floating in a lotus position. Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Go sit in the woods for seven days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's mine. Matt, Matthew, what do you got? Oh, gosh, I I feel like I'm just going to jumble on the bandwagon. But for me, you know, same thing. It was just so deeply intertwined with my own personal narrative and trying to find my feet under me post-injury. Plume was life, you know, and mm-hmm. I put, <laughs> and, you know, and to, I think often to do things at this speed, at this scale, it is all consuming. And, you know, you you find the edges of that. And so I think you talk to seasoned founders and they'll just say like, I can't tell you what to do. I can just tell you what not to do. Like I can right. show you my scars <laughs> and hopefully you learn from that. So the process of maturing as an executive and maturing as a founder is, you know, it can be, you have to find personal edges, personal breaking points and realize that you're going to have to rethink how you approach problems if you're going to make it to the next stage. And so that can be very challenging. And uh, so, you know, same thing. It's been over the past, I'd say year, finding that balance of being invested. And I think actually uh, Ben Horowitz put this in his book, like the two major faults of a founder is not caring enough or caring too much. You don't punk it. And uh, one of the things he says is like, don't punk out, don't quit. You know, you want to stay engaged, but again, just finding that right balance is a real process of learning. And unfortunately, I think you just got to learn it the hard way. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's for me. Balance is always the hardest thing, I feel like, with anything. Especially because it's not like, I don't think it's the moderation people would typically seek. Like, it's not like the temperance for the, the average person. Like, it's a different level of it when you're in this founder position because you're probably more towards the invested part than the disengaged part of the thing. But um, yeah, it's very tentative. Well, and like and boundaries very, don't exist. I feel like most people yeah. try to implement balance in their lives through mm-hmm. boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're like, okay, well, it's Friday at five o'clock and yeah. I'm about to go spend time with my family. But like, you can't do that if the VC is calling you, you know, Saturday morning, like you just can't. So, and then you're trying to make up for time and keep structure involved in that process Mm -hmm. of balance. And that's just not feasible. Then you're just doing a lot more mental gymnastics for no reason. So it's like a, it's a feel thing. It's a gut thing. And I think that that's harder for some people to like go with the flow on. 
Yeah, sure. I yeah. speak from so much experience being a founder. <laughs> we just speak from, yeah, we we just, we talk to a lot of people. So we absorb their experience. Everything, yeah. secondhand yeah, yeah. information is like 99% of what yeah. we have in our lives. <laughs> yeah, well, like, listen, I'll tell you exactly what to do. I heard from some other people about oh, wow. things so I could tell you. I mean, that's how we started this company. It was like watching YouTube videos, you know, it's like, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, you, you bring up a great point that like, and even that there's the tangibles like, Oh, it's hard to shut it off because there's like a thing I got to do. Right. Or a phone call, but there's also the intangible where it's like, even when you think you're drawing those boundaries and you're like, okay, I closed the computer at five, but you you're know, still you're thinking still about turning. It. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and that's what I didn't, ultimately realized until like three weeks ago, I was like, wow, okay, there's the next level of really trying to shut it down when you need to, you know, so you can be present and like really bring your full self when you are plugged in. And, and it, yeah, that's of course a lifetime journey as well of trying to figure that balance out, but there's multiple levels of turning it off. I've learned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks very much. I mean, we are just out of time, but I'm like, inspired to try to turn it off uh <laughs> <laughs> not too much please sir <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also conversely inspired to like go do something good i don't know not tech wow. crunch, but Jordan, yeah so not sorry. tech crunch whatever do what you want i don't care <laughs> <laughs> also going with the flow yeah exactly you're gonna come pitch for us yeah, right yeah exactly <laughs> but it's been great talking to you both i really appreciate your time and your story as well it's a really really inspiring one so thanks for sharing yeah thank you both for your time this was, this was a lot of fun enjoyed it yeah i really appreciate it All right, Jordan, that was our chat with Jerrica and Matthew. Plume, bootstrapped, amazing story. What did you think? I mean, I just think that I was kind of blown away by Tam. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that was something that they brought up with investors and kind of their trajectory in general. And I just think, wow, what a like robust business that can be built in this niche, basically. And I... Really appreciated also how Jerrica was talking about how she was basically going through her own journey alongside the journey of the startup itself and what it meant to like draw boundaries there, but also use it as a way to grow and explore her own personal journey. And I just, I think that there's something really, really special and pretty unique, I think, from a founder perspective there uh -huh. that I really enjoyed. So I think those are the two kind of standout things for me. Yeah, because it's interesting now we on this program have talked to two transgender founders and yeah. Hannah Mohan from Magic Bell was the other one very early in the show's history, but her experience is probably quite different. Uh, and, and she was, you know, great and very forthcoming about talking about how much of her time was focused on that, right? Like in between kind on of On the transition. Yes. Yeah. Like almost taking a break to like the, I need to do this and then I'll do that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So it was super interesting to hear from Jerrica about doing that process while also being in the process of creating a company that has that as its primary focus, right? Like, yeah, super, super interesting. Yeah. And like, you're getting to know yourself again yeah. in a lot of ways, like, or, you know, like letting the pieces of you that were always there shine through more or whatever. And so I think with any founder, there's this 
I think with any person, mm -hmm. there's always a temptation to let the thing that you do for eight hours a day, five days a week, become a slice of your identity. And a slice is one thing. The entirety is another, yeah. right? Like those are, we call those workaholics or like whatever. And so when you're in the midst of personally kind of like transitioning your identity and then also having that bleed into this startup that you're pouring your blood, sweat and tears into, it could be a little confusing, yeah. I think, or, uh, you know, like it could blur the lines in a way that makes it harder to accomplish your goals and just to feel self-esteem based on who you are as a person rather than how the company's doing. And I think it was really cool how open Jericho was about talking about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it, I mean, even Matthew too was talking a lot about, I thought when you brought up the highs and lows sort of question, and then we didn't even talk that much about it, but Matthew had his own healthcare journey, right? And it was specifically around... Mm -hmm being a spinal cord injury survivor. And you could tell that he was very emotional about the journey back from that, like essentially thinking he was probably a quadriplegic for life or at least not going to be able to walk again or whatever, but then having a recovery experience that mm -hmm. I think basically closely preceded this, or I wasn't sure exactly the timeline, but like you could tell that it was very emotional for him too, right? And that experience in a totally different way. But yeah, interesting that they were both going through such monumental changes in their lives at the same time as they were doing this. Yeah. And I think like something that has been a theme throughout this podcast and I think throughout like writing at TechCrunch is like you talk to these health tech companies and on the one hand, you're like, the American healthcare system is so big and so dug in with its heels and so up. Mm -hmm. Like, this is just what it is, kind of. There's this, like, give up, don't think about it mentality. And then you talk to these health tech startups, and they're doing such powerful, impactful things in such smart ways and making these dents. Yeah. And as a whole, when you look at it as a trend, as, like, a broader shift, I feel personally, like I'm constantly trying to protect myself from the hope and optimism right. um, of that, you know, uh, like don't get hurt again kind of thing. Yeah. But it really is exciting. And it feels, I don't know if it feels this way for you, Daryl. I mean, you're Canadian, so you watch it from the outside in, but like it feels a little bit snowball-y. Yeah. Like it feels like we really truly are headed in the right direction. They're not just little dents. It does. And I, I mean, the Canadian context is interesting because we're in a bit of a, like a healthcare crisis at the moment ourselves, right? And there's many reasons why, too complex to get into it. But thank God. Yeah. But like in the American context, even, and Jericho was talking about it, and I was really drawn to this part of the conversation where she was talking about how she did a lot of her work in nonprofit prior to this and thought that was her path and then got to a point where actually direct to consumer made the more sense for what she wanted to accomplish which seems like a wild u-turn but does make a lot of sense when it's like in the system that exists how else do you get incentive alignment if mm -hmm. not that right if you're mm -hmm. trying to do things through ngos they're just rife with all kinds of problems in the system that exists currently yeah it got me thinking to the where i was like well but i mean ultimately that's only because we exist in capitalism and then i was you know getting my radical then you thoughts went and, way down the yeah, hole. Yeah. yeah and then you were ready to to storm back to our barter economy or whatever was going to happen but sure yeah. yeah let's buy a plot of land okay let's build a commune good i think that's where we got we got to so the future of our <laughs> cult yeah i think that's the the end of the road for this app but it was awesome 
really cool company. Definitely go check it out. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Pound is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Kel Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.